This Day in Crime is released every day, Monday through Saturday. For ad-free listening and exclusive bonus content, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus at tenderfootplus.com or on Apple Podcasts. Let's start the show. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. I'm Todd McComas, and today is Monday, January 22nd. On this day in 1988, Ted Kaczynski, better known as the Unabomber, pleaded guilty to all federal charges against him as he acknowledged responsibility for a 17-year campaign of package bombings. Bombings that killed two people and maimed two others. Kaczynski mostly targeted universities, but he also targeted two different airlines. And that's how he gained the moniker Unabomber. You see, the task force assembled to investigate the attacks was called UNABOM, U-N-A-B-O-M, which was an acronym for University and Airline Bombings. Just a piece of true crime trivia to keep in your pocket for when you want to impress your friends. You're welcome. Now let's catch you up on what happened over the weekend. A giant star is charged with manslaughter? A 50-year-old case gets solved. A new home buyer makes a shocking discovery. A real-life weekend at Bernie's. And the mother-in-law from hell. All coming up on this Day in Crime. We're used to seeing one particular Baldwin brother in the news way more than the other three. However, this time it's not for his acting, but for an act he committed while acting. 30 Rock star Alec Baldwin has been indicted by a New Mexico grand jury on two counts of involuntary manslaughter. Both counts are connected to the 2021 fatal shooting on the set of the movie Rust. The first involuntary manslaughter charge is described as negligent use of a firearm and the second as involuntary manslaughter without due caution or circumspection. Both are fourth degree felonies. And two different counts would make it seem prosecutors are covering all bases in case of a trial. To which Baldwin's attorney said, quote, we look forward to our day in court, unquote. Which isn't the first time they've insinuated or even declared his innocence. Baldwin was charged with involuntary manslaughter last April, but the charges were dropped without prejudice, meaning they could refile later based on new evidence. So in case you've been trapped in a cave since, let's say, September of 2021, here's why all this is happening. Cinematographer Helena Hutchins was killed during a scene rehearsal when a gun held by Baldwin fired when pointed in her direction. Director Joel Salza was injured by the same bullet. And to answer your question, yes, real guns were used on the set of this Western, as is often the case, but obviously they're supposed to be loaded with blanks during filming. But in that fateful moment, Baldwin's gun was, for whatever reason, loaded with at least one live round, which means someone behind the scenes screwed up, in which I can only assume in career-ending fashion. And that someone was licensed armorer Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, who has also been charged with involuntary manslaughter. 
The assistant director and safety coordinator, David Halls, has also pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor charge of unsafe handling of a firearm. As for Baldwin, he denied pulling the trigger and stated that he was merely holding the gun by its handle when it fired. A claim which seemed to be supported by law enforcement's inspection of the gun, which suggested the gun may have been modified, making it possible to discharge a round without pulling the trigger. That's why the charges against him were dropped last year. However, this new filing comes after the prosecutor hired a firearms expert to re-examine the gun. This expert's report states that the gun was not capable of firing a round without the trigger being pulled with sufficient force. That would make one believe that Baldwin lied in his statement to investigators and that he must have pulled the trigger with the barrel pointed directly at Hutchins. Well, no pun intended, but hold your horses because Baldwin's defense team pointed out on Friday that in order for this new expert to re-examine the gun, he had to replace certain parts of the gun that had been destroyed during the initial examination by FBI experts. FBI experts who had concluded it was mechanically possible for the gun to fire without pulling the trigger. So in typical Hollywood fashion, it's looking like even when this thing ends, we might all be left guessing what really happened. Baldwin's case hasn't been scheduled for trial yet, but if convicted, he faces up to 18 months in prison and a $5,000 fine which I'm sure is far less than the hourly rate for his defense team. There are very few things I love more than a cold case getting solved. And as far as I'm concerned, like a fine wine, the older, the better. For nearly 50 years, three women have sought the identity of a man who abducted them as young teenagers, tied them up, stabbed them, and left them for dead in an Indiana cornfield in August 1975. Candace Smith, Sherry Rottler Trick, and Kathy Rottler all survived this horrifying attack. And now, half a century later, genetic genealogy technology has finally identified their attacker. Science one, evil pieces of shit, zero. Authorities announced that their attacker was Thomas Edward Williams. And I said was because this crime happened in the past and because Williams died eight years after the attack inside a Texas prison in 1983. He was 49. On August 19, 1975, Smith, who was 13, Rottler Trick, 11, and Rottler, 14, were leaving a gas station on the east side of Indianapolis at 10.45 p.m. and decided to hitchhike home. Then a white guy driving a station wagon pulled over to give them a ride. But when he drove past their destination, the girls quickly deducted that they were in danger and tried to escape the car, but their abductor pulled out a handgun, put it to Rottler's head, and threatened to shoot her. He then stopped the car near a cornfield in Greenfield, Indiana, where he forced the girls out of the car and tied two of them up. He then sexually assaulted the third girl, repeatedly stabbing her and then went back and stabbed the other two that were tied up. All three survived by playing dead and flagging down a passerby after their attacker, Williams, had fled the scene. Investigators discovered that Williams lived close to the location where he picked up the girls, but it's not clear yet why he was incarcerated in Texas. It's also not clear how he died in prison, but selfishly, I'm hoping it was very Shawshank Redemption-esque. 
If you're a Tenderfoot Plus subscriber, keep enjoying your ad-free experience. For everyone else, we'll be right back after this break. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all of that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Every new home buyer's worst nightmare is that something majorly wrong got overlooked during the home inspection. A leaky roof, electrical issues, human body parts in the freezer, things like that. According to the Mesa County Sheriff's Office in Colorado, an autopsy has confirmed that a human head and hands were found inside a freezer of a newly purchased home. A neighbor reported that the previous homeowners, an elderly mother and her son, had moved out and new owners showed up that same day to begin clearing the property. The new home buyers had posted online to invite people in the area to take scrap metal and other materials left behind in the yard and garage including this freezer. Now, a person planning to take the freezer removed a black bag from inside it, ripped it open thinking it was meat or something, and then a head fell out. So they called the police, as one does. And when police arrived, they also found a set of human hands. Investigators said further testing is required to help establish the identity of the person from which they came, and they declined to say whether or not they've made contact with the previous homeowners. But I think it's safe to assume if they haven't, it's only because they haven't found them yet. I mean, I just can't wait to hear how this one unfold. So trust me when I tell you, as soon as we know, you'll know. 
I think a lot of us subscribe to the theory, work hard now so our kids will be financially taken care of after we're gone. Because let's face it, it's hard to provide for them after you're dead. Hard, but not impossible. Here's what happened. A Kansas couple, in true Weekend at Bernie's fashion, pretended their dad slash father-in-law was still alive so they could continue to cash his retirement benefits. And not just for a weekend, but for six years. Authorities say Mike Carroll's pacemaker showed that he died in 2016 at age 81. But Overland Park police didn't discover his body until 2022 after his son-in-law, Kirk Ritter, finally called them to report his death. It doesn't say in reports yet, but I'm guessing the folks issuing those retirement benefits had finally gotten wise to what was happening. Family members said Kirk and his wife, Lynn, would repeatedly give them excuses about why their dad could never take a phone call or visit, leading everyone to believe that he was still alive while they continued depositing and spending money from his bank account. When police responded, they found Mike's body in a bed inside his own home and reported that he had been preserved in such a way that six years after his death, this dad had become a mummy. That one was for my guy, Mike Carroll. I feel like he'd enjoy a good dad joke. RIP, buddy. Sorry your kids suck. And finally, this story has been all up in the grill of true crime enthusiasts the entire weekend. Last November, days after her son was convicted in a murder-for-hire plot over his sister's custody dispute, 73-year-old Donna Adelson was arrested in connection to the very same plot. Why are we talking about it now? Because the fine folks at Dateline featured this story on Friday, and social media was immediately flooded with videos of her arrest at Miami International Airport. Why was she at the airport? She was preparing to board a one-way flight to Vietnam. Why Vietnam? Maybe she enjoys the food. Or maybe it's because Vietnam has no extradition treaty with the United States. Let's give her the benefit of the doubt and say it's a combination of the two. Donna's son, Charlie Adelson, a Ferrari-driving periodontist from South Florida, was convicted November 6th of first-degree murder, solicitation, and conspiracy in the 2014 murder of his former brother-in-law, Florida State University law professor, Daniel Markle. Professor Markle was gunned down on July 18th in the driveway of his Tallahassee home. Prosecutors said Charlie orchestrated the killing, which hinged on a dispute between Markle and Wendy Adelson. Wendy is Charlie's sister and Donna's daughter. Charlie's former girlfriend, Catherine McBonois, and the father of her children, who was the actual trigger man, and one of his friends, carried out Markle's execution. McBonois and the father of her children were convicted in his killing and sentenced to life in prison. The friend cooperated with authorities and pleaded guilty to second-degree murder. He was sentenced to 19 years. At his trial, Charlie acknowledged paying McBonois after the murder, but he said he did so because he believed he was the victim of an extortion scheme and McBonwa could pay off the people who killed Markle. Basically, he argued, if he didn't pay one-third of $1 million within 48 hours, he said she told him he'd be dead too. But the jury didn't buy it, and they sided with McBonwa's story that she and the others were hired by Charlie to kill Markle. 
Thus, he was convicted and also sentenced to life in prison. As for Grandma Donna, prosecutors alleged that the day after Markle's fatal shooting, she delivered a bag full of cash to her son, Charlie, and that she was all too aware that cash would be used to pay McBonwa and her crew for the murder of Markle. Conveniently, McBonwa was also put on Charlie's payroll at the dental practice after this murder, and Donna signed her checks. Now, Donna adamantly denies her financing of her son-in-law's murder, and that as far as signing McBonwa's checks, she's the bookkeeper for the business, so she signs everyone's checks. So is Grandma Donna being railroaded? Well, as a former undercover officer, I love when undercover work helps to solidify a case. And fortunately, that happened in this case. More than a year after Markle's killing and before anyone had been arrested, law enforcement launched an undercover sting operation to try and determine who all was involved. In April 2016, an undercover federal agent posing as someone seeking to blackmail Donna over the murder approached her outside her Miami condo and handed her a news article about Markle's murder. And handwritten on that article was a dollar amount of $5,000 and a phone number. The undercover agent told Donna that she, Donna, was taking care of McBonwa and the father of her children, but she wasn't financially taking care of the friend, giving Donna the impression that now she's going to have to take care of that guy to the tune of five grand. And in a conversation the FBI intercepted after this meeting, wiretap, Donna called her son about some paperwork that had been hand-delivered to her. When Charlie asked if it was about him, she whispered, Well, probably the both of us. She went on to say, You probably have a general idea what I'm talking about. Then she said she didn't want to discuss the matter further on the phone. Smart thinking, Grandma Donna. But maybe you should have thought about that before saying all that other shit. That's all I have for today, so enjoy the rest of your Monday and tune in tomorrow for more top stories with Laura Benson. This Day in Crime is a production of Tenderfoot TV in partnership with Odyssey, produced in association with Burning Mountain Productions. Sources for today's episode and full credits can be found in the show notes, and you can follow us on social media at This Day in Crime. We're back at it tomorrow. Thanks for listening.